welcome to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live seeks to engage the Christian message before a live audience in the CBD of Melbourne. And do we have a live audience here today? Myth or truth? Today we're considering some of the big claims about the Christian message. And today's is a very important one. Are the Gospels historical? Well, our guest today is someone who has thought and written about this extensively, Dr. Michael Bird. Mike grew up in Brisbane before joining the army where he served in a variety of roles. It was in this time that he became a Christian and then left the army to pursue theological qualifications. Mike has taught in theological colleges in Scotland and Brisbane before joining the faculty at Ridley, Melbourne in 2013. Michael has written and edited over 15 books, including The Gospel of the Lord, How the Early Church Wrote the Story of Jesus. And he joins us now. Please welcome Dr. Mike Bird. Uh, it's great that you could join us here today, Mike. Welcome. Yep, welcome thanks to the Ron. show. Uh, in your recent book, you write that growing up, everything you ever knew about Christianity was from Ned Flanders in The Simpsons. Yep. Now, was that an attractive picture to you at the time? Uh, it was better than some options going around. Yeah. Uh, Bart and Homer seemed to have the most fun in the Simpsons TV show. Uh, but that, that, that line was just basically saying, you know, I grew up in a, in a very uh, non-religious background. Yeah. You know, there was no, no, no religion, nothing was brought up. It was just a, a complete non-entity right. in our suburban life. As a teenager, you were presented with three options about Jesus. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. So then what changed your mind? What convinced you that he was the Lord? Uh, a number of things. Uh, first of all, I got involved with a Christian community somewhat out of sheer boredom. You know, I was in Sydney, not much to do on a Sunday morning, so a friend invited me to church and I met some Christians. And, uh, so you, I, just, you just had nothing to do? So you just just literally had nothing to do. I mean, where do, where, what do you do? Where do you go to recover from a good hangover after a Saturday night at King's Cross? Right. Go to church. Go to church. <laughs> you know, something, something, something to do. Uh, and I went along, and I was expecting, you know, basically a bunch of uh, moralizing geriatrics in their late 80s. Uh, that was pretty much my conception of church, or the conception I had from watching TV. Um, so I, I went along, and they were nothing like that. It was a very big mix of people, ranging from the, uh, from the toddlers to the elderly and all in between, and none of them were two-headed freaks. Uh, they were not, you know, a bunch of moralizing geriatrics or anything like that. They were just very nice people, but a little bit abnormally nice, kind of like Ned Flanders nice, but right. without, the, without the weirdness and cheesiness. Right. And there was something different about them, and I was certainly very drawn to who they were and why they were different, what made them different, what made them the people they were. So I you know, began thinking about this, and for the first time ever I, I read a copy of the New Testament, and again, my eyes were open to a world I never knew about, about who is this Jesus guy. And I had to think and reflect, is this guy who he said he was? Is he really the son of God? And the answer I became convinced of was, yes, right. he is. And if that's the case, then, you know, I owe him my faith, um, my worship, my life, my everything. So what was it, though, that when you were reading through that you were convinced that this was, this was who he was? I think it was a, a number of things. When you, you go through the Gospels and you, you see things, the authority he claims for himself, uh, and yet, but it's not a decretal or, or a, an authority of a despot or, or, or a monarch who demands to be obeyed. It's, it's truly that of, of a shepherd king that comes across. So I found myself very confronted by the authority that he claims to have, you know, the ability to judge and to hold all human beings to accountable. 
but that the other sense, his sort of self-giving love, his willingness to do anything, to redeem, to reconcile, uh, to save uh, those who would come to him. And, and that's what really clenched it for me. And if he is who he said he is, and as far as I could tell historically, he is, uh, then I was left with only one option. Now, you've got a new book uh, just about to come out. It's coming out called The Gospel of the Lord, How the Early Church Wrote the Story of Jesus. Now, this book outlines the origins of the Gospels. Now, so, I don't know, can you give us a scoop? Okay. What's, the, what's yep. the story behind the story? How did, how did we get the four Gospels that we have? The story behind the story is around 28, 29, 30 AD. You've got a Galilean preacher wandering around proclaiming the, king, the gospel of the kingdom, you know, the good news of the kingdom. Uh, then about 150 years later, in 180, you have a bishop in France, Lyon, a guy called Irenaeus, saying there are four gospels because there's four corners of the earth, four is just a really crack-a-lack in good number. So we've got four <laughs> gospels, no more, no less. Uh, and the question is, how do you get from Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to 150 years later, some guy called Irenaeus saying we've got four books of called Gospels. So how do you get from A to B? And basically, uh, my book, The Gospel of the Lord, is mapping that process. Uh, what happened? Jesus proclaimed a gospel of the kingdom. Well, what does that mean? What does gospel think? We think well, what, what is a gospel in the first place? Well, part? gospel basically is announcement of victory. It's a declaration of, of, of news of victory. For example, if the Romans were to win a military victory, over some, uh, some kingdom, uh, they would report back the, the evangelion, the, the good news, or the evangelion, the glad tidings that their forces have won and have defeated the en their enemies. When the Roman general, Vespasian, finally decided he'd had enough of all the civil war in Rome, he was going to take care of things, you know, take things into his own hand. Uh, there was a, a, a group that, you know, greeted him with his decision by announcing the, the gospel, the, the evangelion of his news to exceed the charge of the Roman Empire. So that's where the language comes so from. So even Roman emperors could have their own gospels. Oh, certainly. They, they certainly had the good news. Like, you know, we've come in, we've defeated all your enemies, or in some cases, you, and we've brought you, <laughs> we've brought you peace, uh, roads, you know, the whole thing. So, but, okay, but tell us more about the process, though. So, this yep. is, so that's, that's the, the stimulus, perhaps, of yep. what happened. But how did we get from 30 to 180, four Gospels? Tell us more about what actually happened. Uh, well, in a nutshell, uh, Jesus went around uh, teaching and doing various things, and he had a very big impact on his disciples. Uh, he was certainly shaping them uh, in the type of faith that they had in God and also in him. And when he was handed over, when he was you know, killed on the cross, that technically should have been the end of it. I mean, other people had stood up to Rome. Other people had stood up to the, to the Herodians, their, their client puppet kings, and then when killed, and that was the end of it. But his disciples believed that his death wasn't the end of it. They believed he actually had been brought back to life, which meant something about him, which meant that he was you know, the, the, the prince of life, the lord of glory. And importantly, resurrection is what the Jews thought that God would do for them at the end of history, and yet... God had done it for one man in the middle of history. So it completely messed with some of their timescales. Mm. And because of that, they began to form communities where they told stories about Jesus. They reiterated the things he said and did. And eventually some of this was written down. And through a fairly uh, somewhat complex po process, we ended up with our, our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which 
come to us out of that process of retelling the stories of Jesus and about Jesus, probably notebooks or, you know, or shorter summaries they made, and out of the eyewitness of people who knew him and the communities around them. That's basically where our four Gospels come from. And then in the developing process of the church, these Gospels then become scripture, uh, sacred texts regarded as authorities. Right. So maybe can you unpack a little bit of that complexity for us? So in yep. terms of, you mentioned it's a complex process. What what were some of the things that went on? So you mentioned there was something to do with eyewitnesses, perhaps? Yep, certainly so. They're, un- they're very important, aren't they, in, in, in terms of... Uh, outlining accurate history. Exactly. So in the ancient world, I mean, they, they didn't have uh, the same access to, you know, print publications that we have. There were no video cameras, no YouTube. So the best way to get information is, you know, is usually from the horse's mouth, for, from eyewitnesses. And, you know, we find an interest in the Gospels in, in eyewitness testimonies. And Luke is very explicit at the beginning of his Gospel. He says this rests on eyewitness testimony. And even the fourth Gospel seems to be authorised by the specific witness of a chap called the beloved disciple, who's the one who stands behind the fourth Gospel. So eyewitnesses were there, but they began to tell stories. Now, obviously, the eyewitnesses couldn't be everywhere at the same time. But these communities of worship that gathered together, whether they were in Palestine or in other places like Asia Minor, Greece, Rome, uh, they also were retelling the stories about Jesus because they were very important to them. And eventually, um, some bright spark said, you know what, maybe we should have a, a whole book about this. Because, you know, some of the eyewitnesses are, you know, can't be everywhere. Some of them are even, in fact, dying off, in some cases from martyrdom. So it'd be good to have a, a book or a written account of this. And it's probably at this time that uh, a guy called, we call Mark, in the late 60s, early 70s of the first century, decided to write down the reminiscences of Peter uh, and give an account from Jesus. And that's probably the basis of the Gospel of Mark. And that was a a book. It's written in the genre of a Greco-Roman biography. Mm -hmm. And it seems to have circulated fairly wide. Uh, so much so that two other guys, whom we call Matthew and Luke, thought, well, this is a pretty good book. I mean, but I've also got some other things from Jesus' life I could emphasize or say. And they've taken up Mark, imitated his genre, followed his outline roughly, added their own traditions, their own stories about Jesus they know about, and then created their own gospel. And the same thing again with the Gospel of John. So that's roughly how the, the Gospels came into being, through this mixture of eyewitnesses and teachings of these communities telling stories from Jesus and about Jesus, until we get the writing of the first Gospels. Terrific. Okay, wow. Now, it's common to use C.S. Lewis's characterizations that you've talked about before of liar, lunatic, and lord as options uh, when assessing Jesus. But there's also another option, which is mm. legend. The Gospels are simply fairy stories that have been invented. And then world-famous world atheist Richard Dawkins, in his God Delusion, uh, claims that the Gospels are ancient fiction. How do you react, react to claims like that? Uh, well... <laughs> You've got to understand how history was written in the first century. Okay, so the events of Jesus' life, I mean, Jesus lives, you know, roughly about, you know, 4 BC to 30 AD. And then the first gospel is written roughly about 70 AD. But before that, you've got someone like the Apostle Paul writing about him. And, he's pro- and he himself is clearly using some earlier sources, some earlier contacts, talking about people before him. So we certainly know that there were people going around believing that Jesus existed. Because if he didn't, then how do you explain anything about the New Testament arising or the early Christian movement? I mean, I put it like this. We know people celebrate Martin Luther King Day in America. Uh, and they've been doing that since roughly, what, the, the, the 70s or something. 
Uh, how would you explain that if there never was a Martin Luther King? How do you come up with a Martin Luther King day if there never was a Martin Luther King? Uh, so certainly given the short time span that's gone on. Now, it's the same with the Gospels. You, you wouldn't have the Roman emperors persecuting a group called the Christianoi uh, by the early 60s if there wasn't anyone called a uh, Christos uh, for them to persecute. So the Roman imperial authorities seemed to know that there was a, a, a Christ figure who had attracted a following in certain pockets of the empire. And you, you, you can't have that if the whole thing was developed as a myth. And, and myths normally take a long time to develop. And I would say the real mythical or legendary stories about Jesus don't emerge until the mid to late second century. Uh, for example, a document like the Gospel of Peter, which comes from the second century, has got this strange story of the resurrection where a cross walks out of the tomb, standing on the shoulders of two angels, uh, saying all sorts of strange things. Or something like the infancy gospel of Peter, again from the second century, which talks about the childhood of Jesus, where you know, he makes some pigeons out of mud, claps his hands, and they fly off. I mean, this, this is very different to what we find in the gospels, and you can see where legendary accretions have happened. But that's not the kind of thing we find in the gospels. They are far more like the genre of ancient biography and ancient historiography. Although there's a number of different objections that people raise there. One of them is that the Gospels contain miracles, yep. for example, and so, you know, or strange meetings with Satan or unusual human reactions and so on. I mean, did the presence of these types of things make it less likely that they're recording accurate history? Well, it depends on your point of view. You know, if you're a metaphysical atheist living in post-enlightenment period, you know, we know that all sorts of things like angels and that kind of thing, no, they, they don't really exist. If you don't believe in miracles, then when you read the Gospels, you're not going to think that these are, these are non-events, these are non-things which happened. However, for the ancient world, they, they had some degree of scepticism, but not that kind of scepticism. They believed in a world where there was a god or gods, and these gods can interact in the world in various ways or manifest themselves. So in terms of the point of view of the people who were writing these things, these things were quite plausible and to some degree even quite normal. Uh, but from us in the post-enlightenment period, uh, often people can poo-poo the idea. Uh, but when it comes to things like the miracles, I think it's worth pointing out that there are different types of miracles. Yes, we've got things like the nature miracles of Jesus walking on the water, which, you know, admittedly look strange not just to us, but to some people in the ancient world as well. But on the other hand, you've got things like Jesus doing healings and exorcisms, you know, which is praying over people and them getting you know, better, uh, which is you know, certainly not at all strange. In fact, there are documented accounts of similar things happening today. So you've got to discern what type of miracles you're looking at. Yes, the nature miracles can look a little bit more odd, but the other miracles also, uh, despite some degree of oddness, uh, was simply well known in the ancient world and people had no problem believing with them. And if you believe that there is a God who exists, a God who can uh, manifest himself in certain ways, that shouldn't even be a metaphysical problem for us. Actually, we've just got a question that's come through. Aren't the birth narratives myth, or at least largely myth? There are no clear sources where the accounts are from. The disciples weren't there and Luke and Matthew offer very different accounts. Does this cast some doubt on the reliability of the Gospels? Um, which is really related to another point that I was going to raise before about Andrew Bolt a couple of years ago wrote an article oh, yeah. on the contradictions between the infancy narratives and he sort of says that the gospel can't be literal truth. I think it's the same kind of concept as this question. What are your thoughts? Okay, well, the birth narratives are certainly interesting. Um, you can find accounts of other figures in the ancient world who are purported to be born of miraculous circumstances like Alexander the Great and even some philosophers. 
Despite some of the similarities between accounts of Jesus' birth and that of ancient heroes or leaders, there's also some incredibly big differences. For one thing, uh, there's no account of divine coitus. You know, you know, so in the case of Alexander the Great, you know, Zeus comes down on, from his cloud and kind of gets it on with Alexander's mother. You this is a G-rated show, I just want to make G- that clear. Yes, I know, so, so uh, I, I, I tried to sanitise yeah. it a bit. So yeah. you, you find all that kind of thing happening, but that's not what happens in the Gospels. Uh, all we know is that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. A more likely framework, or how can I put it, um, pattern against which the Gospel infancy narratives are based is probably more like the Old Testament, where you have some prophetic figure uh, or some person or some woman who's having problems conceiving a child, and then through divine enablement, uh, she becomes pregnant. The best example is that of the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel, uh, who is tragically barren, desperately wants for a child. She prays and she eventually has one. There's a lot of similarities between the Gospels and that account uh, than there is with these, these ancient stories of pagan figures. Uh, There are some differences between the accounts, uh, admittedly, but also there's a number of uh, similarities. I think everyone agrees that Mary's a virgin, she's betrothed to Joseph, she becomes unexpectedly present, Joseph has a dream, and so there's a similar sequence shared by both. Which is not, which is unsurprising. Uh, again, the differences also may be different, attributed to different sources between the evangelists as to where they get the ideas from, and that's one reason, one reason for it. But what I would say this, as as a historian, what we can say for certain is that there was regarded as being something dubious about Jesus's birth. Jesus was in a, a social category, a mamza a person of questionable legitimacy. Everyone knew there was something not quite right about when his mama had him and when he was getting married. So that, and we find those kind of accusations about Jesus uh, in the Gospels. Uh, we find it also in other literature outside of the Gospels, uh, I think in some Jewish literature and maybe even some second century Gospels like the Gospel of the Ebionites. And we have to know, well, where did this accusation come from? Now, you could come up with a number of explanations that maybe Jesus was simply was illegitimate, but these are all the sorts of things that people offer. But that accusation, I think, is the historical core of the virgin birth tradition. Now, it doesn't prove the virgin birth or the virgin conception more properly, but it's certainly consistent with it. Uh, after accepting that point of the rumour of Jesus' illegitimacy, you either accept the church's testimony to him or you don't. Either you believe what the evangelists say or you don't. Uh, at, at one level, the infancy narratives are there to provide clarification to Jesus' identity of the, as the Son of God. So that is their theological and narrative function. However, they certainly are based on the idea that there was something strange and peculiar about Jesus' birth and upbringing. And maybe it only came out later precisely because it was so strange and controversial. So John 21, 24 to 25, which should be on the outlines for those who are present here today, it says, This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that were written. So who is this mysterious disciple? The mysterious disciple. He's called the beloved disciple. That's the way he's described in the fourth gospel. And he, he seems to be the, the a figure, the, the, the authority, the eyewitness who stands behind the content of the fourth gospel. Now, what we can say with... Um, some degree of historical probability is that the beloved disciple was a Judean disciple of Jesus. He's, he's there particularly 
active or mentioned during the Judean phase rather than the Galilean phase of Jesus' ministry. He seems to be within the circle of Jesus' followers, although it's a little bit hard to say precisely where. And he knew Jesus, and eventually he founded a church or a community or a group in Ephesus. And he is the, the figure they look, they look back to as the one who authorizes or brings to them the testimony of Jesus that's contained in the fourth gospel. And in tradition, uh, he's known as the Apostle John. So th that's what it's saying is about, you know, th this all sounds weird, you know, these, these various signs that Jesus does, water into wine, that kind of a thing. Uh, but the guy who stands behind it is this man, this, this, this beloved disciple of Jesus. He's the one who told us these stories, and we believe his, we believe his account is true. So, well, how does this passage then help us determine if the Gospels are historical and not just made up by this beloved disciple? Well, that is that, that they are looking back to a person who has connection to Jesus. Mm. And so well, let's look at this other passage in Luke chapter 1, the prologue to Luke, which has <clears throat> lots been written about. Uh, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed over to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now, many would suggest that on this basis that Luke is intending to write something historical. Would, would you make that oh, th conclusion? Th this is exactly right. This type of prologue is exactly what you find in other historical works. I mean, a good example is the Jewish historian uh, Josephus in his apologetic work against Appian, where he tries to defend himself against accusations of a bad being a bad historian. This is the type of thing he would write. Uh, also, this is similar to the way that more technical authors, like the, the authors of, of medical books, would often begin prefaces to their work, detailing their careful investigation of the events. When we read Luke's account, a number of things stand out. First of all, Luke knows there are eyewitnesses, and he has, uh, for a better word, interrogated them. I mean that in the more technical sense of interrogation. This is not with Gestapo and lights and so on. Not military interrogate in terms of interviewing and engaging. And he also recognises that others before him have undertaken a similar work of telling a story of Jesus. So instantly, Luke is setting us up to take him seriously as a historian, and he recognises there, there are differences between true and false accounts of history, and he's trying to root and anchor his story in eyewitness testimony, which is the kind of thing that ancient historians did if they wanted to be taken seriously. Well, we could keep discussing now, but I'll maybe open up for the audience. They've had a couple of text message questions through. Are there any questions? Michael, you spoke of people writing things down. Yep. Could you, or do we know how these people wrote things down? I mean, they didn't have notebooks like us. They had a scroll of some sort. Could they carry that around and write uh, there were There were different writing elements. You had like little wax tablets. Uh, that people this is different use. to an iPad tablet. Slightly different to an iPad oh, okay, tablet. Okay. So you had like a, a little, uh, like a little wax tablet where people could scroll note. And you do get small little notebooks uh, where you can write these things down. And uh, these are beginning to gain popularity from memory, I think, uh, around after the time of um, Julius Caesar. But certainly in the early church, uh, they took very quickly to the idea of a codex 
rather than using a scroll, which is, you know, it's awful trying to, to literally scroll through them to find what you're looking for, uh, they use this new fangled technology called a codex, uh, certainly for their major literature, but also probably for the small little notebooks as well. So you know, these things were around, uh, and it may be some of the, the documents that precede the Gospels, like short collections of sayings of Jesus or short collections of parables, he said, may have been transmitted in both an oral form but also in these short little, uh, shorter written documents. So it's very likely they were around, given what we know about ancient book culture and education. So Mike, today we've thought about the Gospels. So in your view, myth or truth, are the Gospels historical? They are historical. But we've also got to understand that in terms of ancient history. One of the things that frustrates me talking about Gospels and history uh, is, is on the one hand you get sort of people, the, the, the Richard Dawkins and the Andrew Bolts, who see some things that are metaphysically out of bounds for them. You know, dead people coming back to life, uh, the sick being healed, that kind of a thing, and they just rule it out of, out of bounds which is more about metaphysics and actual reading of the text. But on the other hand, the other frustration I have is those who read the Gospels as if it's kind of like someone was following Jesus around with a camcorder. And that's exactly how it was. Uh, what the evangelists give us is the story of Jesus. It is a historical story. It's also testimony. It's historical reliable on the terms of the first century. So in terms of how history was written, given the narrative devices and the parameters for them back then, yes, it is historical. But we shouldn't assume that it's, it's written as if we're watching a 60 Minutes documentary. I tend to think the Gospels are more like a, what I would call a, a documentary drama. You know, when they, they kind of reenact re events uh, that, have, that have gone on. Um, a good example, they did kind of like a reenactment of, you know, for the uh, Oscar Pistorius trial, you know, where some, you know, they kind of you know, reenacted the events of what happened on that fateful night where it's believed Oscar shot his, um, his girlfriend. So it's kind of like that. It, it's a dramatic representation of the historical evidence according to historical conventions. So when you understand it on those terms, yes, we can say it is definitely historical, and it also kind of staves off certain other critics who don't understand ancient history. So given that, what's next? What's the next step? We've kind of established that there's some historical credibility to the Gospels. What would be the next step? Yeah, one of the things about reading the Gospels, and this is, dare I say, one of the risky things about reading the Gospels, is you're not just confronted with a, a bit of information. Well, how about that? There was a Galilean holy man. He taught about the kingdom of God. He claimed he was embodying the kingdom. He died and come back to life. Well, good for him. Now, we're also confronted with uh, his message about himself. Uh, is he the son of God? Uh, if he is who he said he is, if his teaching rings true, historically and even somewhat existentially the way it meets us, then, then that demands a response. It's not simply to regard the Bible as a, a wonderful piece of ancient literature, uh, but it becomes a story we can see ourselves in, a story we're confronted with, a story of, of God uh, that is calling us to himself through his son Jesus. So we're ultimately confronted with who do we think Jesus is? And if he is who he said he is, uh, then we owe him our faith, our devotion, and our worship. Terrific. Well, it's been... A pleasure today, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us. And let me leave you with the Logos for the day. Uh, John 21, 24. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. I look forward to you joining us next time. Please thank our guest, Mike Byrne.